Elena, Will, and I are here, in the deepest tangles of the jungle. We've been traveling for weeks to get here, and we're now witnessing a phenomenon only seen a few times before in nature. A black hole in its native habitat, gobbling up stars as food. Shh! Don't get too loud, or you'll startle it. Sorry. Jeez, these things are massive. Guys, guys, this is really important. I forgot to tell you something. I'm organizing Astrobytes' first ever webinar panel event for undergrads. This seems like the perfect time. Uh, no, Will, shh, we can discuss this later. But it can't wait, you see. So many undergrads out there are looking for the right advisor. We have to tell them about the event called Finding, Choosing, or Changing Advisors. Sounds suspiciously like episode 25. I'm laying out, Will. Something just touched my leg. Melina, it's not a ripoff of episode 25. It was inspired by episode 25. <laughs> all those ideas we had about the qualities of good advisors, I think all undergrads should hear that. And many of the Astrobytes members want to share their personal experience with advising an undergrad and offer some advice on transitioning to grad school. And I'm going to be moderating the discussion. Well, dang it, I think you scared it off. But this was important. We have to tell everyone that they can see the show notes for the link to learn more in RSVP for the event. Ah, no one's coming right at us! Quick, let's start the episode! Wait, wait, Will, when's the event? Oh, it's March 9th from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay, Come on, okay. we gotta go! <laughs> Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transient events. I'm Melina Rice. I'm a fourth-year graduate student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems and their dynamics. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year grad student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to episode 30, The Carnivorous Cosmos. As astronomers, it's easy for us to sit back and learn about the universe from the comfort of our own homes. But it's worth remembering that the universe can be a tumultuous and violent place, where celestial bodies can interact, collide, and even get ripped apart. Of course, matter can be neither created nor destroyed, and so the gas and dust from one object often become the building blocks for another in a process known as accretion. And just like in nature, we can think of this as a cosmic food chain, where the smallest objects get eaten by bigger objects, and those objects get eaten too, eventually. Some objects will eat their food quietly, while others make such a mess that it's hard for us to miss. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about a few members of this food chain that have been caught in the act of accretion. But before Milena and Will tell us about them, I have a few questions for them. So let's start off with the first one. Do all celestial bodies form from accretion? And if not, which ones don't? Well, I guess it depends on your definition of accretion. Classically, accretion is material falling into an object and making it bigger. Mm -hmm. So is an object formed by accretion? Or is that sort of a formation process, gravitational contraction, and then once it has a core, it accretes? So it really depends on the definition. The one example I could think of where things 
definitely grow without accretion is black hole mergers. Hmm. That's definitely not accretion. Mm-hmm. You have two black holes that combine and make a much more massive black hole. Right. But I think in the other sense, everything else grows slowly from material falling into it. That's a really good point because, yeah, you can think of the formation of black holes maybe forming by direct collapse, I know is a theory that some people have. And neutron stars, pulsars, things like that are also formed by collapse. And so that's not, at least initially, an accretion process, although potentially you could have accretion events throughout their lifetime after the initial formation. That's a great example. Right. I'm wondering, do objects change accretion rate over time? And if so, what causes that? Oh, you bet they do. (laughs) It really depends on the object and the timescale we're talking about. But on the shortest timescale, even say a star with a circumstellar disk around it will have spikes in the accretion, sort of a sudden burst of accretion onto the star. Then what happens is the disk actually slides then radially away from the star a little bit to conserve angular momentum. It sort of balances out. And then you have feedback from the star that would then suppress the accretion briefly so that you get what's called an accretion spike. Hmm. So that happens all the time. But in the longer term, accretion can change over timescales of millions or even hundreds of millions of years. And that's actually the subject of the astrobite I'll be presenting. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so when we talk about accretion, what kind of timescales are we talking about? Or does it vastly differ based on the object we're considering? Well, it really does depend on the object how long accretion could take. If we're going to call it accretion when a star collapses from a molecular cloud and start burning, that could be on the order of millions of years. Uh, We actually presented an astrobite in one of our early episodes about a multiple impact hypothesis for the formation of the Earth's moon. And in that case, the moonlets, the little pieces that became the moon, could form from a debris disk in 50 years, which was pretty shocking. Wow. That's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right. But my astrobite's about supermassive black holes. And here we're talking on the order of a billion years. Wow. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> so really across the full range of timescales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What signals do accretion events give off? How do we observe these things happening? Well, sometimes they'll give off a flare. So you might have something like a tidal disruption event where you actually have a really dramatic increase in flux that you see from a large accretion event. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you can see them through something like changes in composition. So that's actually what my astrobite is focusing on, where if you see the signatures of accretion through changes in the composition that you wouldn't have expected to see otherwise, as when something gets engulfed by a star, then the composition will change in the photosphere then that's another way that you can determine that something has been accreting if it's too small to actually directly see the event itself. So some of these events are much more dramatic and high energy than others. And so which way you would actually see the event might alter a little bit based on that. And it's harder to see like for something getting thrown into a black hole changes in the composition of a black hole. I don't think that's something you can observe. I don't think so. Yeah, so it varies a bit depending on the object. Milena mentioned tidal disruption events, which is the subject of my astrobite, so I will be talking about that in a moment. But I will throw in that the supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies, also called active galactic nuclei, they look like different events based on the viewing geometry. So if you observe them primarily in the radio and they're oriented in a certain direction, it looks like a very different thing than if you observe it primarily in the X-ray. So they call these all different things, but they're all accretion of material around a supermassive black hole. So confusing. 
It is confusing. <laughs> yeah, you know how astronomers love to label things phenomenologically, so I would imagine that originally there were tons of different classes of these things that slowly reduced and reduced over time as we found out it was the same thing across different geometries. And sometimes the names of the classes is the name of the first one that was discovered in that class, which is so confusing for people who aren't in the field because you keep hearing a name and you're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> okay, well, in any case, I'm hearing bits and pieces of both of your asteroids, so it sounds like we're ready to jump in. Why don't we just start off with you, Will? Absolutely. The asteroid I'm presenting is called Stellar Snacks, or How to Grow a Massive Black Hole Through Tidal Disruption Events. This Astrobyte was written by Jason Hinkle, who's actually co-hosting the Astrobyte webinar event that is happening on March 9th. There's no way that was a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> the paper is by Pfister and others published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society in 2020. Now, as a quick recap on supermassive black holes, they are millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. And most galaxies have one at their center, including the Milky Way. And they are the most massive thing in the galaxy, but they don't make up most of the galaxy's mass. They do have a plurality of the mass. <laughs> okay. Now, of the many open questions in studying active galactic nuclei, supermassive black holes, is how they got so big. And there are more or less two schools of thought. It could be accretion, which we've spoken ad nauseum about today, and all the material falling onto it gradually over time. Or it could be mergers, that they formed as small black holes, and we know that black hole mergers do happen all the time in the universe, so they kept building up and up until they got supermassive. The problem with the merger theory is that you would expect them to find a lot of intermediate size as they continue to grow, right. there would be a large population, and we don't find those. We did actually report on a possible detection of an intermediate mass black hole some time ago, but it's one, and there would have to be many, many more to solidify that theory. And the problem with accretion is people think it's just too slow. Did this astrobite that you're talking about end up addressing this question then? Right. So this is the idea of this paper, is they're proposing what you said earlier, Melena, tidal disruption events mm -hmm. to fill in the mass of the black hole and be an important part of how it grew so big. Hmm. Now, what is a tidal disruption event? It's actually kind of sad. Uh, a star is just hanging out in the universe, minding its own business, and it gets, gets too close to a black hole. It just provokes it a little bit. So was it really minding its own business? <laughs> well, I don't know. Who, who's to say? But the black hole rips apart the star by tidal forces. And Jeez. we experience tidal forces with the tides on Earth, right? The high tide and low tide. You take that to an extreme, it's not just the water that gets pulled, it's the whole material of the body. And in this case, it just rips a star apart, it blows up, and it's dead. Right, this is called spaghettification, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Melina knows her pasta. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in a normal galaxy, a tidal disruption event would happen once every 10,000 years or so. So they're pretty rare, but there are a ton of galaxies. So they do happen all the time in the universe. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And this paper wanted to see if tidal disruption events would grow supermassive black holes by running a very detailed simulation. But you mentioned that these events are kind of rare, right? So would you expect them to contribute a significant amount of mass? Right. They're rare in that they only happen every 10,000 years. But if we're talking about a billion years worth of time, that's actually quite right. a few tidal disruption events. And I'm wondering if you say they're intrinsically rare, but you'd expect many observationally because you have a lot of galaxies, 
how do you simulate that without just having a ton of galaxies that you're simulating? Or I guess you could impose that you just make one have a title disruption event. That's exactly what they did. It's one of the limitations of this work, which is they only simulated one galaxy's evolution. But it is a way of, of making it a little easier than having to do multiple galaxies. But my gosh, this is a complex simulation. It's, it's a full cosmological hydrodynamic simulation. It's got gas effects, cosmology, star formation, feedback, supernovae, detailed black hole physics, galactic dynamics. It's just math dripping off the page. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really curious to know what they found. What they found is that tidal disruption events contribute 0.2% of the total supermassive black hole mass, which actually isn't that much. So that was a little bit of a surprisingly low detection there. (laughs) (laughs) Did they turn all their knobs too to try to make them like the most frequent that they could possibly be? Yeah, I feel like you could tweak parameters for years on this study. (laughs) I think that might be some future work. I think this was a very simple first estimate. Mm Mm-hmm. And actually, so they were surprised that it was only 0.2%. But when you look at the details of how the supermassive black hole grows, tidal disruption events are actually more important in the early part of the growth of the galaxy. And so for the first sort of 600 million years, the tidal disruption events help the supermassive black hole grow quickly to the point where it can accrete gas more efficiently. So even that 0.2% might be critical in unlocking the other 99.8%. So even if you don't have large explosive bright event like a tidal disruption event, it could still be growing from accreting material around it, right? Right, absolutely. The problem is that it needs to sort of get to a certain point where the accretion happens efficiently. And once maybe the tidal disruption events feed it enough where it gets big enough, it can feed itself and start accreting material in the galaxy. There still remains to be seen how important the tidal disruption events are, but it's clear that they do have an important impact Mm -hmm. in the earlier part of the galaxy's formation. I'm wondering if stars are far, far more common than free-floating black holes that are just orbiting in the galaxy. I guess I'm wondering why they're specifically looking at stars that are falling into the central black hole as opposed to other black holes that are also falling in. I guess that's sort of one of the other theories that you would have thought of, but I'm thinking about this in the framework of having a relatively large black hole at the center already, and then you're adding stuff in. So I would think smaller black holes would also just sort of be tossed into the big cooking pot of things that are being eaten by the central one, right? Right. I mean, you would think so, but very few stars form black holes. It's only the most massive stars, and they're, they're so rare that there wouldn't be enough, I think, to make a difference. But if you have stellar mass stars that accrete via a tidal disruption event, well, there are tons of those in a galaxy. So even if you have one every 10,000 years, you could build up millions of masses of the sun pretty quickly. Right. I like this result because intuitively it kind of reminds me of when you're snacking a ton, but you're still hungry at the end of it. (laughs) So like the dust and gas, I I don't know, past a certain point, you're still going to need to be fed. But if you have enough tidal disruption events, then maybe you can reach a point where you're satisfied. You could say the tidal disruption events are like a good appetizer. It makes you ready for the main course. (laughs) 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 Well, thanks so much, Will, for that astrobite. You're welcome. And as we know, every fine dining experience needs a little background music. So (laughs) let's add our bi-weekly space sound of the accreting celestial body for black holes and white dwarfs.
All right, what do we think that was? There's no way that Perseverance actually has already sent back audio, right? I mean, I saw the picture. Maybe maybe they would have. I don't know. What do you think, Will? I don't know. It sounded like a buzzsaw. <laughs> <laughs> so to be clear, our two answers are Perseverance and a buzzsaw, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stick with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So it turns out it was not a buzzsaw, but it was the Perseverance Mars rover. Hey. Woo. It sent back audio. This is the Mars rover that touched down just a few days ago on the Martian surface. And the Perseverance rover is the first rover that is equipped with microphones that are fully functional that we fully expect to record audio and send it back. And we're particularly excited about it sending back audio during the so-called seven minutes of terror, the most terrifying aspect of the descent to the Martian surface where it's passing through the atmosphere and being heated up and all of that we should have audio for. So hopefully NASA will be able to process that data and send it back. The audio that you all heard, this kind of ambient buzzing, is just the general vibrations of the instruments being picked up as it travels to Mars. So nothing too exciting, but it's, in a sense, also very exciting because it tells us that the instruments are working fine, that the microphones are picking up signals, and that the seven minutes of terror and hopefully all future activity that Perseverance does on Mars will be picked up and sent back to us. Hmm. Will, do you know if listening to this type of audio can tell us something about Mars's atmosphere or something? Or if it's mostly just like to understand what happened to the instrument as it fell? I doubt the audio itself has any information, but one of the most common ways of studying the atmosphere of Mars is something called the radio occultation, which is the expertise of my advisor. And this is when orbiting spacecraft beam radio waves through the atmosphere to Earth. And the changes in the frequency and the phase of the radio waves tells information about the atmosphere. So sometimes they actually piggyback the radio waves on a carrier frequency. That is, they're sending telemetry, they're sending information to Earth, and they can extract from that the changes due to the atmosphere. But sometimes they just send a tone, and that also works as well. Think about how much kind of public awe, and it just has to be such a pivotal moment when we hear sound on another planet for the first time, and maybe we get videos with sound to come, just experiencing a different planet in another sense is so incredible to me. Yeah. Absolutely. It makes you wonder whether or not our ears would actually work on Mars. Obviously, we can't breathe. The atmosphere is very thin. But if you could just expose your ear and, and hear, maybe there would be enough vibrations to, to vibrate our eardrum. Maybe not because the air is too thin. I really have no idea. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. And hopefully perseverance will too. <laughs> That's beautiful, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> And now, Melina, why don't we move on to your astrobite before I uh, wax poetic a little too much. <laughs> All right. My astrobite is called The Very Hungry White Dwarf. It was written by Briley Lewis, and it's about a paper by Izquierdo et al. in 2020, and it's about a phenomenon that I'm really excited about and that I think is super cool called white dwarf accretion. Yeah, so give us some background on that. Yeah, so I want to start off with just, first of all, what is a white dwarf, since mm -hmm. I don't think we've talked about this too much yet on the show. White dwarfs are the remnants of main-sequence stars that have finished fusing material at their cores. So they're very dense, and they're at the end state for stars that are below about 10 solar masses. So bigger stars end up dying to become neutron stars or black holes, but the smaller ones become white dwarfs. What kind of chemical composition are we talking about here, Melina? 
So I know that they blow off a lot of material as their planetary nebulae, and then also a lot of material ends up sinking into the core of the white dwarf. So what you actually see tends to be hydrogen or helium when you're observing them. But in the core, it's carbon and oxygen, right? Yes. Got it. And white dwarfs don't have a source of energy. As we mentioned, these are dead stars, so they're really just supported by electron degeneracy pressure. So that's the pressure from the Pauli exclusion principle that prevents two electrons from occupying the same quantum state. Whoa. Whoa. That basically just means that because you can't pack electrons tighter than this, the star can't collapse any further. And that's what's holding it up. So white dwarfs are produced after these stars have undergone their full evolutionary cycle. So they first expand into red giants, shed their outer layers as planetary nebulae, and then after that they ultimately just become a very dense, compact object that is a white dwarf. Remarkably, a lot of these white dwarfs have been found to also include pollution in their atmospheres from metals. And this isn't something we'd expect because, again, the material should actually sink into the core over relatively short timescales. So there's some upwelling somehow? Or maybe something was added to it later on? Yeah, so the idea is that something would have had to be added to it because I don't think white dwarfs have anything like convection that would actually upwell that material. It wouldn't make sense because they have no central engine. Yes. So it's it's pretty much just a compact object. It's as dense as it can get, and stuff is just sinking into the core as far as it can. So it's just kind of quickly differentiating. I feel the weight of it as you're describing it. <laughs> <laughs> and so you might then ask, you know, what is this material that's falling on? And you can probably guess this based on the fact that I'm excited about this topic. <laughs> Um, that it has probably something to do with planets. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so white dwarf pollution is generally thought to be evidence for planets and other circumstellar debris that's falling onto the surface of the central star after the star's death. And this is a process often referred to as engulfment. Engulfment. That's a funny word. Yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty good word. That's a bleak <laughs> word for a standard astrophysical process, potentially. But Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think there are much more aggressive words in galactic studies. So engulfment is just, you know, it's aggressive eating. It's that's, messy eating. <laughs> you know, our interview with Tay Baxter, we talked about strangulation. We talked about just so many terms <laughs> that you would hopefully not name those things today. Yeah. Yeah. So... Engulfment. <laughs> oh, gosh. Can we, can we just name it something else right now? Okay. Um, Let's name it something fun. The hug. Um, the, I no? don't know about that. No, okay. It has to be descriptive, you know? Mm -hmm. Attraction? I don't know. Oh. Happy <laughs> Valentine's Day, everyone. <laughs> We could just call it eating. It's, it is eating. Let's do it. The white dwarf is eating its planetary friends, and they're all becoming one in a happy nirvana. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so this astrovite is now getting to the material, <laughs> um, is focusing on a helium-dominated white dwarf called GD424. And the authors use a ton of different data sets to try to understand the properties of this white dwarf and its composition. So they used spectra from the William Herschel Telescope in La Palma, Spain, uh, from the Keck-1 Telescope in Hawaii, uh, and then they also used photometry from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, the Pan-Star Survey, and Gaia-DR2. So lots and lots of data. 
seems like a lot to keep track of. And using the spectra, they were able to determine what the properties of the star are. So they compared the star's spectrum to a model grid in effective temperature, log gravity, so the strength of the gravity at the photosphere, and the hydrogen over helium abundance. What is the photosphere, Melina? The photosphere is the outer layer of the star that you actually directly observe. So the star is going to have lots of different layers, but the layer at which the star becomes opaque is the photosphere. Right. So that's what you actually see when you look at the star. Got it. And that's what we see as the temperature of the star is usually a measurement of the photosphere because that determines its color. Because you can't see deeper in unless you have some signal like neutrinos that can pass through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like for the sun, that's why it looks like it's about 5,700 Kelvin if you just look at the photosphere, but actually different layers of the sun are much hotter than that. And cooler, in fact. And cooler. You probably know more about this than I do. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing great. Keep going. Okay, so they compared a spectrum to a template across a model grid. Yeah, so then they pulled out the fundamental properties of the star as well as the hydrogen over helium abundance. And then they determined from this that there's actually an excess of hydrogen over what they would have expected from this type of star. And that's pretty interesting, actually, because in the past there have been a couple of other studies that have observed something sort of similar. So a study by Fusilo et al. 2017 found that this type of hydrogen signature is almost twice as common in white dwarfs with metal pollution as in those without metal pollution. And another paper by Farihi et al. in 2013 found excesses of oxygen in white dwarf spectra that they attributed to water, meaning that the excess of oxygen would also produce an excess in hydrogen. So the authors in this paper suggested that this white dwarf, GD424, may have accreted an ocean world that led to this observed hydrogen excess. Okay, now you got me really intrigued. (laughs) So somehow there was a planet orbiting this star with an ocean that survived the star going to the red giant phase and planetary nebula and turning into a white dwarf. And then the ocean accreted onto the star or was the ocean boiled off sometime before then? I think that the water world would have still had water on it when it was accreted onto the star. So I'm not actually totally sure that it would have been in liquid state at that point because the star isn't giving off energy anymore. I'm not certain about that, but it would have provided the hydrogen and oxygen that is necessary. This is going to get grisly for a second, but you know on murder shows where they dissect the contents of the victim's stomachs and they figure out like what last meal they had and whether they were poisoned and things like It really reminds me of that mm. where you're figuring out what the last <laughs> meal the white dwarf had by its composition. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is sort of like a murder mystery where they're looking at the footprints of all of the different elements that are there. So they don't just look at hydrogen. After they determine these first few abundances, they also determine the abundances from further modeling of helium, oxygen, magnesium, silicon, and calcium. And then with these, they can determine what are the properties that they would expect if they use a certain accretion model, and how much of these different elements would you still expect to see now? How much do you see? And what would have actually happened? How can you extrapolate what fell into this white dwarf? This is a really funny coincidence. I happen to be a big fan of Star Trek, and I'm currently watching The Orville, which is Seth MacFarlane's sort of Star Trek mm-hmm. spinoff. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to watch an episode where they observe a planet with an ocean being consumed by its star as it turns into a red giant. Just this morning, I was watching that episode. No way. 
How fun is that? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Fate. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Life imitates art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it looks so cool. It would be amazing to watch an ocean evaporate as it accretes onto a white door. Yeah, but unfortunately, the authors don't think that this is an ongoing accretion, or at least not of the ocean. So they think that it's something that might have already happened in the past. And the reason for that is because they also determined what the budget for oxygen would be that was tied up in water. So I mentioned that they measured both the hydrogen abundance and the oxygen abundance. And they determined based on their accretion models that the amount of oxygen observed could be fully accounted for by other common minerals like magnesium oxide and aluminum oxide that you would expect just to see in rocks. So they found that there was actually an oxygen deficit regardless of which accretion model they used, which indicates there's an excess of hydrogen, not an excess of oxygen. So because hydrogen doesn't sink as quickly as oxygen does, it doesn't differentiate as quickly and fall in because oxygen is heavier, that indicates that this water world would have fallen on actually a while ago and the oxygen has already mm. sunk and these other metals are coming from other circumstellar material that still exists around the star that's now the rocky dessert <laughs> <laughs> you you should never make a white dwarf the treasurer of your organization because they'll always go over budget <laughs> <laughs> i think that is the perfect timing to transition us into our one sentence summaries so why don't you get us started, Will? Tidal disruption events might be the aperitif before supermassive black holes eat their way to billions of solar masses via accretion. Someone has been watching British Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> That's some good cuisine. <laughs> How about you, Melina? White dwarfs are often observed snacking on their planetary neighbors, and we can determine from compositional changes in their atmospheres what their recent and ongoing meals were. Very nice. <laughs> and now, since we have a few minutes left over, it is time for the dessert of the episode, something that we have not had time for for many episodes now, <laughs> which is the discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start off with, as always, maybe a philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> In astrophysics, we make lots of analogies with nature and wildlife and animals eating each other in this kind of survival of the fittest landscape. And is that really a fitting analogy? Or can we better think of these kind of astrophysical events as an ecosystem of objects that all work together and have feedback between them? Are neither of them very apt analogies? I would argue that a lot of this eating is actually quite nonviolent. So, for example, when you're forming a planet... The planetesimals are all sort of building up together to become a larger planet. But it's not like, oh no, we really wanted to not be part of this planet. I would actually be honored to be part of a planet. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, they're working together to create something bigger. That's exactly. beautiful. Exactly. It's like a, a symphony orchestra. I think it's great. Wow, I love that. <laughs> what do you think, Will? I think it's part of the enriching process of the universe where it naturally recycles, combines, you know, merges, works together. And then things also spit out and, and get broken apart so that they can be renewed. Um, nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. We don't need to, to think about this as sad or bad or something we need to be afraid of. It's just natural. Yeah, I wonder if maybe it taps into our idea of like these things are things that we don't fully understand yet. And so we kind of equate them to like feral animals or like the wild, some untamed thing. But 
Maybe it's just a symphony orchestra of things all working in tandem, <laughs> a beautiful ecosystem. I also think that, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking about planets, but I feel like planets are relatively tame. As far as astrophysics goes, they're not really doing anything that aggressive. They don't really collide with things that often. I guess the moon was formed through a collision, but is that an aggressive thing? That something crashed into the Earth and created a moon? I think it's nice. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, none of these objects are, are animate, right? None of them have their own drive and desires to do their own things as independent actors. It's just a thing that happens. Right. The moon's existence is pivotal to Earth's stability of its obliquity, that is, its tilt. And if our tilt varied as much as Mars's, we would have ice ages that come and go too quickly for our life to develop. So, in fact, we needed that giant collision. It's like a a little (laughs) bit of instability helps make us more stable in the long run. Yeah. Entropy increasing is not always a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) And before we delve into the heat death of the universe, I have another question. And that's... Do we always observe hierarchical growth of objects? That is to say, the big objects just accrete things and continue to get bigger? Or is it possible that small objects accrete material from larger objects, and so the larger objects can get smaller as well? It's rare. Usually big things do get bigger. But I thought of one example to the contrary. Uh, It's actually about white dwarfs, and they're called cataclysmic variables. This happens when you have a binary star system with a white dwarf and then a star and the star finally turns into a red giant as it begins to end its life and as it inflates and puffs up it overflows the area that it can hold on to and spills some of its stellar material onto the white dwarf and the white dwarf was just minding its business not you know doing any fusion not burning but suddenly it gets this new stellar material and if it gets above a critical point it'll just suddenly do fusion all of a sudden blow up and then it does the cycle over and over again. So that's why they're variables and they're cataclysmic because they keep blowing up. Hmm. Wow. And I like that too because it's again kind of relating back to the idea of this symbiosis going back and forth as opposed to just one thing continually pulling in material and destroying the things around it. Right. Mm-hmm. So this also sort of makes me think of we've we've been talking about things growing throughout this and haven't really mentioned that things can also get smaller. So like debris are created from planetesimals crashing into each other and grinding into little dust. So things can both get bigger and smaller in space. It's not necessarily a one-way street. And I guess now that I'm thinking about it, Hawking radiation is a thing that exists in AGN outflows and, you know, things lose energy too, right? Gravitational waves carry energy away from large bodies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, things can get smaller, too. It's just maybe those things getting smaller are less energetic. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, a supernova is definitely a star getting a lot smaller, and that's incredibly energetic. That's true. Depends on your perspective. Maybe just a question of timescale. Wait, I don't understand that comment. Like, if it loses material over the span of 10 seconds, it's probably going to be a very bright, very energetic event. But if it loses material over the span of 100 million years, then it's probably unlikely to be a very bright explosive event because it doesn't have the amount of energy required to maintain an explosion over that duration of time. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And my last question, what are the least energetic accretion events in nature and what are the most energetic? For least energetic, something that immediately comes to mind is planetesimal accretion, and that's because 
These are rocks or pebbles that are formed in a gaseous disk. So they're really very gently sort of coming upon each other and merging into larger objects. It really should be a pretty gentle process. Something else that came to mind, this might not be very gentle, but I actually don't have a good sense of how much energy this takes, is the formation of elements in the early universe when you're adding on protons and neutrons. I don't actually have a good sense of what the energy budget is for that. Like, just think a proton by itself. How much energy does it take to add another proton? Well, all, all accretion is gravitational contraction. So yeah, it's, that's true. It's conserving angular momentum, but it's not conserving energy. But I think your point is, is probably right, that a single electron accreting onto a single proton might be the lowest energy accretion possible. But if you sum it up over all nucleosynthesis, it might be incredibly energetic. And if you think about it, Big Bang nucleosynthesis at the beginning of the universe occurred at a time when the energy of the universe, like the energy density was incredibly high. Mm. And only once it decreased past a certain threshold could this kind of recombination occur and atoms start to form. I don't usually think of the Big Bang as like a low energy thing, but <laughs> <laughs> I think individual protons and neutrons and electrons combining could probably yeah. be pretty low energy. Right? It's just the sum of all of them that would be higher energy. Mm-hmm. I agree with you on that. In terms of the most energetic accretion, I would think it has to be a supermassive black hole with a large accretion disk. If we're talking about accretion as anything that makes a larger object then I would say it's two black holes merging because the amount of energy liberated is in the order of masses of the sun Mm. turned from mass into energy equals mc squared. So that's an unbelievable amount of energy there. Do you know how much energy is released in tidal disruption events for a comparison? I'm afraid I don't. I mean, if you think about it, the star from the tidal disruption event gets turned into either heat, light, or new material for the black hole right Hmm. so it's got to be some fraction of the mass of the star in mc squared in terms of the amount of energy that gets lost right so it'd be less than a single stellar mass which could be more than a solar mass but would probably be less than you get from these uh, black hole mergers i would think yeah that would be my guess as well right Mm mm-hmm okay well thanks very much for the discussion i think that'll conclude episode 30 Carnivorous cosmos, or symbiotic cosmos. (laughs) Nirvana cosmos. We're not going to make it that. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to read the two astrobytes we talked about today, and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Discussion's making me hungry. I'm going to do a little accretion myself. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to put that at the end or something. <laughs> <laughs>